past year, we've leveraged Vistaprint services to help us on our mission to inspire entrepreneurs of color. They've helped us print stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats. Yes, they print just about everything. My point is they print a lot more than just business cards. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. We furloughed everyone, and yeah. um, and then we started working on how we how do we operate safely? How do we get grants? How do we um, what's what are these different programs that are happening of feeding school children? And how do we do meal kits? And like wow. is takeout safe? Like how many people? Yeah, you know, all of that stuff. So there was like you know it kept going and we just really thought okay we can if we can get through the next six weeks yeah. okay if we can get through the next eight weeks all right <laughs> if we can get that then it became like if we can get through the week okay. yeah and then um it just kind of kept going and like i think you know restaurant people are used to having fires every day that you're putting <laughs> out and it just became one of those things where you kind of um have to center yourself and mm -hmm. like the anxiety after a while there's only you know you, you can't drink every day <laughs> and you can't not sleep and so the answers always come back to like you know taking care of yourself yeah so you can take care of other people, other people so you can take care of your business and you just do what the situation calls for this is the claim of stories podcast a show about creatives and entrepreneurs of color and how they were able to build their own tables by turning their hobbies side hustles and ideas into thriving small businesses I'm Bima, and on today's show, recorded live in Raleigh, North Carolina, at our Storytellers Dreamville Festival event in partnership with Vista, we speak to Chidi Kumar, a chef based out of Raleigh, who dreamed of being a rock star. The James Beard nominee moved from India to the Bronx when she was only eight years old, and America was nothing like she'd hoped. Despite growing up around kids from all over the world, she still felt like an outsider. She never knew what she wanted to do with her life, but as she got older, she knew she liked two things, music and food. Chidi's first love of rock music would lead her into a career managing bands. While on the road touring, she fell in love with Raleigh and saw that the city had an opportunity to bring her love of food and music together. So when the music world wasn't nourishing her anymore, she bought a restaurant. In our conversation ahead, Chidi shares a story about balancing her love of food and music my mom, you know, she had a very tragic childhood and um, her parents were killed when she was young and oh, wow. uh, she had a lot of survivor guilt and I don't think anybody ever really dealt with it and nobody in the country even talked about, you know, the partition and all the people that died um, in that whole migration that was forced. Um, so I think, you know, being in America was like an amazing 
thing for her, but she was really conflicted about yeah. losing touch with her culture and raising daughters or raising yeah. children in America and leaving her siblings behind. Mm -hmm. And um, she had this like imagination that they were maybe starving or they, yeah. you know, here they are pursuing, you know, wealth really, like pursuing a comfortable life. And I think she just really felt guilty about it. So they had a five-year visa and um, they were supposed to, you know, extend it. And she was like, no, let's go back. My dad's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and so like, he didn't, you know, they didn't extend it. And then she got pregnant with me. And she was like, no, I think I want to stay. And it was like too late. It was so. too late. Yeah. And so when when they went back, when y'all went back, yeah. was it the intent that you were going to stay? Or was the intent was like, we're going to go back for a little bit and then we're going to come back to the U.S.? You know, I think they um, they weren't very deliberate about it. I think my mom had imagined that they were going to go back and then reality hit when they went back and it was just like, what are we doing here? You know, yeah. we had a path and we were on a good track and now here we are dealing with all of the things that we left on purpose. So um, I don't remember a time when I was little in India that we weren't dreaming of yeah. coming back to America. Yeah. That was a very common conversation. Common, common. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you and your family did return, and you returned when you were nine years old, right? Eight and a half, yeah. Eight and a half, yeah. nine. And you ended up going into New York, right? Mm -hmm. The what, Bronx. What, so the Bronx. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was the biggest culture shock going from India to the Bronx? Uh, there was so much, you know. Um, just life was so different. I, I, I played outside every day, all day, yeah. um, as a kid. We didn't have a television. We didn't have a telephone. Um, yeah. No, I mean, like, you know, infrastructure there is very different. Like the electricity would go out for, you know, few planned blackouts every, every afternoon. Um, my grandmother lived with us. Mm -hmm. I took a rickshaw to school. You know, I mean, it was completely different. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not like we lived in a village. We lived in a fairly modern, a very modern city, like the most modern city in India, in, yeah. small city. Um, but when we moved to New York, you know, I, we had this picture of America as this like shiny, clean, you know, wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and lots of space and like- <laughs> Yeah, I saw those commercials. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and you know, we landed in the Bronx and we live in a two-bedroom apartment. Um, there's three kids and my parents and, it's not safe and yeah. you know we're just kind of like inside all the time and um there were a lot of people kids from other parts of the world but there weren't any kids from india yeah so you it was kind of hard to find it just like, felt like a freak yeah. you know um so i don't know i just like had an accent and i had really stupid clothes and we didn't have any money and yeah. my mom was losing her mind and you know it's just i think any kid that has that experience of moving um even moving from like place to place right has goes through a thing and kids adapt really well or you think you do and you don't really understand the things that you've done that you're to, changing exactly. as you're trying to adjust to this environment yeah, that's what therapy's for after you move out it's <laughs> right. a lot of money that's been spent on there yeah. <laughs> so you move, you're trying to figure things out as a kid. Your parents are trying to figure things out, right? And that's the stuff we never realize because, you know, we're kids. We don't realize our parents are trying to figure stuff out too. Um, but considering your first generation, did, did they have any expectations for you being in the States? Like what they're like, Chidi, you need to do this. Well, it was never really even discussed because it was assumed hmm. that 
I'd be the best student in the class that I would, um, well, my sister was like, she came out of the womb and she knew she wanted to be a doctor, right? <laughs> I have never known what I wanted to do with my life. I still kind of don't. Um, and so my mom would always say, and you know, my mom was raised in Northern India and like mm. girls get an education to get a better husband. They don't, they don't choose their husband and she did. They don't um, have a career mm. for the sake of having a career. They pursue degrees and then they don't use them, mm -hmm. you know? So she wanted to make sure that like, and my dad too, like that we, you know, I could do anything I wanted. Mm -hmm. So she was like, you, you don't have to be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. Like, I think she meant, like, you can be a lawyer or an engineer. Like, those are the options. <laughs> Just don't, you know, they, they were both PhDs. They were research scientists. Um, and that's a really hard life. You know, yeah. you don't, um, you only make money if you get grants. So you have to write a grant every constantly. year, every five years. Constantly, there's this, like, oh, my God, if we don't get the grant, you know, we're going to lose our job. Like, yeah, exactly. So she was like, maybe don't do that. But, mm -hmm. like, I would get, you know, I was going to have a professional degree. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I grew up, I think a lot of Indian kids can probably relate. Like if you get a 98, you know, it wouldn't be like, awesome. You'd be like, what happened? Oh <laughs> Somebody get a hundred, like, you know, was it possible to do? Cause if you, if it was, then you should have done it. Um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, it was a very academic household and, um, you know, it was very food driven too, but food was never, not a career yeah. and arts were not a career option. So I just kind of, I'm a middle kid. So mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, slithered under the radar, <laughs> tried to be as helpful as I could. Maybe they didn't notice that I wasn't planning on doing, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So, yeah. you know. I mean, like a lot of us, right? Like we're yeah. just kind of like, well, you know, there's some folks like you mentioned, like your sister, she like new yeah but i'm kind of like you I, I went through a, a long period of just like i have no idea yeah what i what i want to do from a career or just life standpoint you know just kind of went with whatever happened was happening but i know food was while it wasn't thought of from your perspective as a career it was like a passion right yeah and like how did food start to show up in your life and like how were you engaging with it um, I mean, I think that relationship has changed so many times throughout my life. And really, like, since I was a little kid, um, like I mentioned, my grandmother lived with us and she wasn't an awesome cook, like, but she cooked every night. Um, and I loved being in the kitchen with her. I just, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if it was that I love being with her or that I love being in the kitchen or I love being in the kitchen with her. She let me do stuff. Yeah. Um, sometimes that was a bad thing. Like, you know, she'd let me put, the, you know, make flatbread on the pan and I burn myself, you know, like, oh my. um, Your mom but, must have been. but she just wanted to please me and I wanted to please her. And yeah. it was this like, you know, very, bond. Yeah, it was a, it was a very sweet bond and it was all really around like, you know, milk and bread and, and, you know, yeah. spices and even washing the dishes. Like I just couldn't wait to be a big girl and do yeah. that. Um, and then when we moved to America and my mom was working, then it was like, uh, I was her helper. So I would get dinner started and it became a chore. But then mm. I also like, like it, there was a separation between what we were eating for dinner at home and then like I would read cookbooks. Like uh, we would go to the library sale and get like a box of books for $2 and I would always get the cookbooks. And so there was like, oh, well, you know, my mom doesn't use cookbooks. Like we just cook, but then yeah. there's this whole other way of doing oh, yeah. stuff. That's happening. 
Yeah, so it was kind of like a, a fun study for me. Um, and then it became a, a vehicle for procrastination. Like when I was in school, I would, you know, go to the dorm kitchen in the basement and make like a bunch of food and like, you know, <laughs> get people to eat. And then, you know, I was just always kind of driven by, driven it. by it. And now now I have a, a very different relationship yeah, with it. It's yeah, more, you know, yeah. business oriented, but probably still, you know, passion filled too, right? I, yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot more, um, it's different. It's regimented. I have to like, I can't, it's very rare that I get to just cook yeah. without recording the recipe. Like I have to be thinking about- You have to be constantly thinking about how you can scale it across and share it with yes. the rest of your chefs. How to translate it, yeah. how, to, how to transcribe it, how to, you know, how to uh, cost it out and like what's <laughs> practical, you know, there's all these parameters, which is, you know, sometimes a, a good vehicle for creativity, but yeah, it's I get it, yeah. I get it. Yeah. But, you know, one thing I wanted to, to touch on too was that, you know, Dreamville Festival, you know, tomorrow and Sunday is music. and yeah. I know that you went from New York to North Carolina and music was also a huge, it's probably still a huge passion of yours. Like, tell us about that. Like, were you, you know, obviously probably pursuing a music career or was it just, you know, a passion and you were interested in it and you were just going along with it? Um, well, so part of like assimilation in New York um, when I was, you know, 11, I mean, I was always really into music, but in India, it was like, you know, the Beatles and ABBA and Bollywood records and, you know, movies or whatnot. And when we moved to New York, there was all of this like awesome, you know, all these punk bands were happening and like the radio was amazing. And like, you know, people were doing cool stuff and mm -hmm. it was just like obsessive. And it was also a good way for me to be friends with people, yeah. especially like guys. Um, <laughs> And not in like a flirty way. I no, just like, just you know, like a commonality. Oh, you, I love the who and I love Led Zeppelin too. You know, like, like yeah. it was, it was kind of a, a good language. Mm. Um, so it, you know, I was kind of always into it and I went from New York to UMass actually. Okay. So, and I, when I was in college, I um, worked at the radio station and, you know, so I started thinking, well, maybe this will be somewhat a legitimate career yeah. and I could be a manager for a band. I don't ah. want to work for a radio record company, but maybe I could. And so, like, I made friends with people that come on tour, and um, there were a bunch of, like, really nice people in Raleigh, and I was <laughs> like, I'm going to go visit, and then I'm like, I'm just going to live here for a year and see what happens. And, and so, you stayed. Yeah, I stayed and stayed and stayed. So how do you make the transition from managing artists and, you know, having this career in music to being like, you know what, I'm going to open my own restaurant? Oh, yeah, <laughs> man. Like, so, that's such a, like, you know, that's, I mean, it's creative, but it's still two very different things. It was, it was very different. So, I, um, you know, from 22, I start my own company. I'm managing bands. I get them all, like, big, fat record deals. And then they all break up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, the thing about bands. Yeah, it's, like, not mine. You know, it wasn't my decision they're the creative force so um that kind of fell apart and I was like you know I I actually hate managing people <laughs> and so so I opened a restaurant real smart <laughs> um and I just you know I was like still young and yeah. my I met my now husband and he was like you know and I just wanted to play music and you know again like punk rock and DIY and it's just like you don't have to be you know great, great just express yourself yeah. so i was like 
well, this for a little while. Um, and so we did. And um, I just, you know, wanted to get out. And yeah. I, I was sick of being like Raleigh's small town. I mean, you know. You're on the road. Like, it's, like, it's just yeah, it's, so it's repetitive. It is. And, <laughs> and I thought being on tour would be a great way for me to learn how to play mm -hmm. because I wouldn't be playing in front of my friends. It's easier to play. Away. With, in front of strangers, if I mess up, I'll never see them again. It doesn't yeah. matter. So that's that's sort of what we did. You know, we just went to the state auction lot and bought a prison van <laughs> and, you know, cobbled some money together and made a band and went on, on tour. And then I just fell in love with it, you know. Well, gas probably wasn't what it is today. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, it went up and down. It, it up. seemed like every time we went on tour, gas would go up. <laughs> it's just <laughs> one of those things. But... Um, in the meantime, my husband and two friends opened a music venue and on McDowell Street next to where Pools is. Now there's nothing there, but um, it was just like a cinder block building. It used to be a tire factory and they opened a very basic music venue um, and a lot of great bands came through and mm -hmm. I, you know, I didn't want to have any part of it. And so this is, you know, Raleigh's like really small and there's nothing happening downtown and rent super cheap and nobody's doing anything downtown. Sounds like opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And so that they did that for like five or six years. We were on tour all the time and I would come back and I'd just be like really wanting to cook. And I was working in a restaurant to okay. support being in a band. Yeah, so you had, yeah, you had. Yeah, so like music and beverage and food kind of all became you know they lived in my life in a very uncomfortable way because they're all kind of separated yeah um but when when the building got torn down that kings was in we started looking for a space that had restaurant as a part of the concept yeah but i just wanted a tiny little yeah, eatery small, yeah, yeah. Eatery, not a restaurant. <laughs> Eatery. <laughs> I wanted a food truck that didn't move. Like, I just wanted that thing with, like, four items and, yeah. you know. Super simple. Yeah. And and use seasonal things and go to the farmer's market and find stuff to cook. And, like, that's that's what I wanted. And we really looked for a small space. Yeah. And um, we didn't find anything in this, this space that we're in now was already a restaurant and a music venue and a bar and <laughs> except it was almost 11,000 square feet so I, we, we got the lease on that building and it was like okay I guess I'm opening a restaurant I think so, you're opening a restaurant yeah you know it's it, it's interesting when you said you found a space that you said it was previously a restaurant mm -hmm. how important is that versus like a completely just why not go with a completely new space um, it's really expensive Okay. And we didn't have any money. Okay. Um, so that's that's like a big part of, you know, being an entrepreneur, opening a restaurant. Like I couldn't we couldn't have done what we did if Raleigh like now. Yeah. Raleigh's not affordable to take a chance by, you know, uh, for nitwits who don't know <laughs> what they're doing and like open three businesses in one. It's still like now, you know, we understand what what it takes and like right. you know you grow because you have to right but um yeah it's you know it's so expensive 
every, I mean, plumbing, construction, uh, electrical, and then a space that size needs sprinklers and mm. you need a fire alarm. And like, you know, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now that build out would be millions of dollars. And like, Jeez. that's just never going to be yeah, you feasible. Know. You're not going to make that money back. No. I mean, and also like, I didn't know how to go to a bank and get a loan and write, <laughs> you know, write a, like, I didn't know. I didn't have that language at yeah. all. So, I mean, I had saved money from being a manager. We got a down payment on our house. We got our house early. So we were, you know, refi. And yeah. Yep. And wow. So we did a lot of the work in the restaurant, like, Yes, it was built out, but it was ugly. So we, you know, we renovated and a lot of it was like with our own hands and our friends who were really talented, you know, carpenters mm -hmm. and like fix it alls and like we know how to do auctions really well. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it takes, you know, it takes a village, just like they say it takes a village to raise a kid. It's very much the same for, for businesses, right? Like there's just, you can't pay for everything. It doesn't make sense financial sense That's to right. to pay market for all of these things you got to figure out how to call in favors or trade things where you can now one thing i didn't hear you say was that you didn't say you went to culinary school so how did you learn the techniques you know to cook um i mean terror is sometimes <laughs> a really great teacher <laughs> Um, I, I studied a lot, like on tour, you know, you'd have like six hours a day and mm -hmm. I don't like to talk very much. And my, you know, my bandmates are all dudes and they're just like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm in the loft, like reading cookbooks and studying and like watching videos. And, yeah. um, and then, you know, I remember right before we, I was like getting ready to open, I was like, I don't know how to break down a fish. So I went and got like a bunch of cheap fish and just learn how to Start break to down. Learn. I mean, just, you know, you, you teach yourself and you get better at your knife skills. You understand the things that, you know, matter hmm. and your techniques really matter. And I, I taught myself to play guitar. I can teach myself teach. how to, you know, brunoise and, and, and filet. And, yeah. and I, I still study all the time. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, there was a long time that I really wished that I'd gone to culinary school, but, um, all of my friends who had were like, you just have such a, you know, natural and, you know, uh, inventive way of looking at things because you didn't get beat down by, by, these, <laughs> by culinary instructors. Yeah, these yeah, techniques so. that, I mean, clearly you're doing fine. <laughs> I mean, if you want to learn it, you'll find it. If you value it, you'll, you'll, you'll learn it. You just yeah. need discipline. Yeah, And totally. that's school just teaches you how to learn. When we return, We'll learn about Chidi's DIY culinary training and how she learns that managing a restaurant isn't like managing a band. What's up, Claim of Stories fam? If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've heard of Vistaprint, right? I mean, we've been doing a lot of incredible work together to inspire entrepreneurs of color, so we hope you're paying attention. Now, when it comes to printing things, and I mean just about anything for your business, whether it's stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats, Vistaprint's got you. They print just about everything. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to the Claim of Stories podcast. So it's 2013 and Chidi and her husband decide to buy a restaurant, bringing good food and good music to Raleigh. Um, managing people. I think that's, you know, that's still, it's the hardest, it can be the most rewarding and also like the most painful. Like I, I remember the first time somebody gave me their notice, 
I was just like, but you've only been here for three months. Like, you can't leave. You can't, can't leave. move to Philadelphia. What are you thinking? Like, <laughs> how could you do this to me? You know? <laughs> um, you know, managing expectations and like, you know, making it pe so people can succeed. Like, um, and it's really, it was really hard because I was working so much, you know, yeah. you work 80 or 90 hours a week and you're just like beat down and you're terrified and nobody was coming to the restaurant and like we were losing money every, every two weeks we were like going into our line of credit and then ooh, climbing out of it and then going right back in. It's just like, man, what did I do? Yeah, you know, like, what did I get myself into? Yeah. Like I can't back out now cause we're like on the hook yeah. for it. So, um, yeah, managing people is definitely the hard, and I still struggle with it. But you know, you you learn from other people, and like you you learn to have conversations um, initially out of desperation, but then you realize that like everybody's kind of had this learning curve, and there's an actual like skill set, and there um, there are things that you can learn how to be a better manager and mm. how to be a better leader and a mentor, and like the things that you implement into your business matter and like the math of it is all connected to it you know same with consistency with with recipes like you can't you can't be the only person who knows how to cook something yeah you like, gotta you can't do everything no you can't and right. and you gotta come up with ways of like writing a recipe that people can understand hmm. and do it over and over again if it means like you gotta divide it up into um sections mm -hmm. then that's actually the smartest way to do it that's what so, you do yeah tell me about this last two years are, you know, you can plan as much as you can for the worst as a business. Yeah. But I can't imagine you were thinking a global pandemic. <laughs> I know what to do here. Yeah. But like, how has that been as a restaurant owner? Um, well, uh, it's, you know, it's life changing, I think, for everybody. But um, I remember when it first happened, I was like, oh, my God, we're going to get like two weeks off. Yeah, like we have enough money to pay our staff for two weeks and not worry about it. And, right. you know, we'll just, we'll got, we got this. And then, you know, I, in the beginning of the pandemic, every day was like massive change and like, a whole, you know, the numbers and the numbers. And then somebody told me, it's like, I think it's going to be like six weeks. And I was like, oh man, uh, I don't know. So after like a day, you know, we realized that there's no time off there's in this. No like off. we, we, closed we um we realized who we could keep on our team and who needed to be paid mm -hmm. and couldn't actually legally go on unemployment wow. um so you know we committed to paying them um and then we we kind of when i knew that there was going to be federal assistance we we furloughed everyone and yeah. um and then we started working on how we how do we operate safely how do we get grants how do we um what's what are these different programs that are happening of feeding school children and how do we do meal kits and like wow. is takeout safe like how many people you know all of that stuff so there was like you know it kept going and we just really thought okay we can if we can get through the next six weeks yeah. okay if we can get through the next eight weeks all right <laughs> if we can get and that then it became like if we can get through the week Will be. Yeah. And then um, it just kind of kept going. And like, I think, you know, restaurant people are used to having fires every day that you're putting <laughs> out. And it just became one of those things where you kind of um, have to center yourself and mm -hmm. like the anxiety 
after a while, there's only, you know, you, you can't drink every day <laughs> and you can't not sleep. And so the answers always come back to like, you know, taking care of yourself yeah. so you can take care of other people, other people so you can take care of your business and you just do what the situation calls for. Mm. And um, once people started talking about vaccine, it was like, all right, this is over now. And, and then we learned like, I think actually last year was harder than 2020. Wow. Yeah. Just because like the um, the shock of it going from everybody got in, getting vaccinated and reopening the dining room to like, oh, We're there's doing a this. variant. Mm -hmm. And then there's another variant. And, you know, the, the team that we had sort of kept and then uh, we got, got some of our old folks back. And then once we went through that change, they were like, I can't. They, can't, they were like, I'm done with they it. Were, they were gone. So then staffing becomes a challenge. Staffing was like a gut punch. It was mm -hmm. like an existential crisis. Wow. Yeah, it was hard. So it's, you know, that was two years ago almost when that two week, you know, you thought you're, you know. Yeah, it's been that, more than two weeks. More, March 16th is when we, when we shut down. Yeah. Right. And now, you know, we went to the restaurant the other night and, and things, you know, feel semi, semi normal, mm -hmm. right? Like folks are coming back through. Uh, you know, I have to mention that, you know, you've been nominated for a James Beard Award and all of these things seem to, seem to be happening. How do you, how do you think about it today? Like, what do you think about, you know, the restaurant today? Do you feel a bit more at ease or like you still have those anxieties? Um, I have a lot of anxiety, um, but I don't have as much as, um, or it's different than it was in November. Um, I've just gotten maybe better at, um, living not with it, but like putting it next to me. Yeah. Like it's always going to be there and learning the lessons of just cause you're thinking something doesn't mean that's the reality. Re right. Right. And so, um, finding a center beyond that and, and just like we can plan, but just know that it's on, it's in pencil. There's no ink it's and you just get through the week and you, and you do your best and you really, you know, like I want, I want the team, like it's always about the staff, like no matter what, it's just about the staff. And like, even if, um, if, if we went away or even if like, uh, things got, get worse, like much worse again, and they move on from this career or they move to a different restaurant, it doesn't matter. Like it's, it's really not fundamentally, nothing has really changed because mm -hmm. life is so temporary anyway so just you know just living in the moment is like a, a discipline that i'm really kind of actively working on that's a good practice that's something i, could, I need to practice myself it's, <laughs> it's the hardest thing it's very hard because you're you're in this phase where you're like yes i need to do that but i also need to be thinking about what's ahead of us yeah uh, so it's it's that duality that it's a challenge yeah how do you plan for growth when you're not sure if growth is possible it's possible yeah yeah Tell me, so you, I know a couple of days ago, you went to Congress, right? To, to, to talk about issues facing independent restaurants mm -hmm. around the country. What's going on? Why did you, why did you go? What's happening? Well, this particular testimony was uh, the small business committee in the Senate. And I had done one virtually for the house last year. And this all started because of the independent restaurant coalition. And that was formed like literally four days after the pandemic, you know, after lockdown started nationally. And, you know, restaurants were the first 
we're always on the front line. Yeah. Something is happening, look to your independent restaurants and you'll get a vibe for what's going on. What's going on, right. And so restaurants were like freaking out. Remember when we thought that we could get COVID from a paper bag? Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and like from takeout containers and like bleaching everything and like <laughs> washing your grocery bags before you brought them in the house. Like, you know, we didn't know anything. We didn't know. And so um, restaurant owners, is like independent restaurant owners generally are working really hard all the time. And we operate in a bubble. Like, you know, we get there in the morning, we manage the morning staff, we, we stay through service, we manage the evening staff. We're like, you know, doing a hundred things. We're plumbers and accountants and doing all of it. Um, we don't think of ourselves as a collective industry. And when the pandemic started, we we're like, oh my God, we're not, we're like all in this together. And there's nobody advocating for this, this part of the industry. Hmm. Uh, Chili's and Outback and McDonald's. They're and good. They, they got... all have a seat at the table in, right. in DC. And they they are the ones who are influencing the laws and they, they're the ones who are keeping the minimum wage what it is and the sub-minimum wage what it is. But nobody's talking about the innovative ways that we, you know, source from local farmers and we pay our staff more than we, you know, than we're like legally obligated to. We we find creative ways of making people come together and we anchor our communities, but we, we don't, we're not represented in, in the government. Um, and we need help. Like if we go away, like we're 4% of the GDP, 4% of the GDP and nobody knows that. And we, you know, there's, Ooh. Yeah, 350,000 restaurants applied for a grant that w that took a year to, to become a reality, which is a really long time in a pandemic, but also that's a really, like, that's massive, um, that's a massive success yeah. to, to get a coalition together to write a grant program, to get it submitted in the Small Business Administration, to get it, like, administered, to have Congress pass it. Like, it's, you know, amazing work, right? Well, it was supposed to be, a, we asked for $120 billion, oh, wow. and we got funded for $28 billion, and we were kind of given a promise that this was going to be a down payment. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, well, if as long as the infrastructure is there, refilling it shouldn't be a problem. Right. It's already yeah, technically but, should be there. Yeah. But so 300,000 restaurants applied within the first month. I mean, most of them in the first two, two or three days. And only, you know, like only a third of the restaurants got funded. And um, and these are not, you know, everybody's like, oh, restaurants made, you know, $10 million grants. No, like no. the average grant um, was $500,000. And just a real synopsis was like, it's your losses. It was re recovering your losses. It's, it's a, it's, you submit and everything is like, proven and you know you have to submit a lot of documentation but we're good at doing all this stuff we know how to you know yeah. consolidate a pdf and submit it like we, we got this <laughs> um so here we are a year later and um still nothing still. so um you know the the conversation was theoretically about the supply chain but you know guess who's bearing the brunt of the supply chain issues restaurants, restaurants. so you know i've been able we were fortunate to get the grant and I, I know, I mean, uh, there's no question that if it wasn't for that, we would be gone. Like, wow. we would have gone out of business a year ago, 100%. There's no way. I mean, there, it's just impossible. But we can weather these, like, labor shortages and, and 
paying $85 a box for fryer oil when we used to pay 35, you know? What? Yeah, I've paid up to 100, but we use non-GMO oil because we're very, you know, health conscious, yes. but you know, still it's like, I can't even get it. And this, yeah. you know, so many things are global market and we source so much locally. So we didn't really have as many issues as somebody who runs maybe a sports bar of and they course, get commodity different. wings or whatever. Their prices have gone up like crazy. Mm -hmm. I can rewrite my menu and put a different cut of things on there. Nobody's going to think twice about it. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there's a lifeline and, yeah. uh, you know, like you were saying, how do you manage? Like they're all a series of bridges from one crisis to another. And this is a, a, a real bridge. It's not just a rope. So no, yeah, that's, like that's necessary. really what I was there to advocate for. And then beyond that, you know, once this grant issue is either funded or like, not gonna happen um the food system really needs like some advocacy that are it's broken and the labor system is broken yep. and you know all of those um we need a seat at the table we need to talk about it um lawmakers don't know unless you tell them and you got to make some noise and you have to make your your presence be heard. In their face yeah yeah that's right um one more one more question for you before we take a question from the audience um you've navigated a lot of different circumstances in, in your career, whether that was, you know, figuring out what you wanted to do to getting into music, to opening a restaurant. Now for, you know, someone in our audience that might be interested in doing that, what advice would you, would you have for an aspiring restaurant owner and chef? Well, um, <laughs> if, if somebody had given me this advice before I did it, I might not have done it. Um, but you know, I, I think, a, a bigger question is, I mean, there's a there's restaurants, right? So you should you should work in a restaurant first. Yeah. You should get the training that you need. Uh, you should uh, try to operate something like you own it. Like try to manage something mm. like you own it, just to see how how it feels. Like, um, but don't get stuck. Yeah. Um, but overarching, I think you know, like what you were saying uh, earlier in this conversation, like the things that you're passionate about. Right. Think of them as your career. And um, I think we were talking backstage about mm -hmm. like most people in this country have three careers in their life mm. and nobody really tells you that. So don't think about the decision as though you're, you know, looking ahead like, well, is this, you know, I'm going to make this decision for the rest of my life. Like think about the moment and think about where you are and be creative and fuel your creativity if that's mm -hmm. like what inspires you figure out a way to do it and then know that life will bring you to the next step and it'll it'll feel right at that time that was chidi kumar the punk rock chef who's doing it her way find out more about chidi and get access to all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts if you enjoyed today's episode please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a review Stay up to date with our latest news through following us on Instagram at Stories, or you can reach out with a message at hello at ClaimaStories.com. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo, Perfi Patel, Natalie Yazzie, Jericho Trim, and the team over at MarketBox. Original music provided by Adrian Anaya and vocals provided by Rosella. Special thanks to Jordan Dinwiddie, Cena Clark, Clint Blaine, and Damian Mitchell. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to the Claim of Stories podcast, powered by Vista.